Hello and welcome to AK47, 47 readings from selections of the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. I want to extend a huge thanks to Brett over at Revolutionary Left Radio, who was so kind to add a link to this show in the program notes for an interview that I did with him. So if you're interested in hearing me talk about my book, I highly recommend that you listen to Brett's wonderful podcast. Today, I am going to start what I think is going to be a series of episodes on a really important essay that Alexandra Kollontai wrote called Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth. And this essay is dated around 1925, and it's a really important piece of Kollontai's writing, particularly for me, because this was the essay that really got me thinking about sexuality and socialism. And in many respects, the research that has been done in the former socialist countries of Eastern Europe around sexuality sort of use a, this article, whether they know it or not, as a, a kind of basis, a sort of theoretical and intellectual forerunner of many of the theories of socialist sexuality that I discuss in my book. This is a sort of longer piece, and I really think that it's important for me to go through it pretty carefully, since I think a lot of the core arguments that Kolontai makes in this essay are really important for the sort of larger understanding of why sex under socialism or sexuality or human relationships, and particularly romantic relationships under socialism, are somehow more satisfying than they are under bourgeois capitalism what she calls the bourgeois epoch. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to read and I'm going to try to read selections of this. I'll, I will, it will be a slightly abridged version of the entire piece, but I will um, stop in between various sections and give a little bit of a commentary so that you have a little bit of a sense of what's going on in the essay. So there's a little bit of historical context, which is probably worth mentioning here, since I realize that not everybody who's listening to this podcast is a specialist on their early Soviet history. So obviously, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917. And Alexander Kolontai is initially made the Commissar of Social Welfare. And eventually, she sort of falls afoul of Lenin and Trotsky, some of the early revolutionary leaders, and eventually is sent abroad, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, to to take up a diplomatic post in Norway. But there is this period of time in the 20s when she is very actively involved in this thing called the women's section, the Genotel, and she is still really thinking and writing about women's issues. And at least in the early 20s, the party paper and the establishment is allowing her to do so in a quite public way before she sort of falls afoul of Lenin and joins the workers' opposition and creates lots of problems within uh, the, the party. The big thing that you need to understand is that obviously the revolution happened in, the first revolution in Russia happens in February 1917, the so-called bourgeois revolution, and there's a provisional government that is set up 
And then, but they don't leave the First World War, which is, of course, what many people want, especially the socialists and the communists. And eventually there is the Bolshevik Revolution. And almost immediately after that, uh, there are these elections that happen, uh, but the Bolsheviks don't win as many votes as they want. And so they dissolve the the parliament and institute the dictatorship of the proletariat and then you have uh, the beginnings of the Russian civil war which continue for a couple of years and then is followed upon by a pretty horrendous famine so you have basically World War One then you have a civil war then you have a famine and by 1923 when Kolontai is writing this piece she is basically saying okay <gasps> We've survived. The revolution is intact. We've beaten off our enemies. We are now in the process of establishing power and authority and trying to fix the economy and trying to get agriculture up and running again. And even though she has a lot of issues with, for instance, the new economic policy and some of the things that are happening, and obviously she's not very happy about the centralization and bureaucratization of the Central Party, she does take this opportunity to write an essay about love and sexuality, which I think is really interesting. And and she basically, as you will see in the beginning of this essay, she sort of says, okay, now that we've survived all of this horrendous chaos of the last five years, we need to actually get back and start talking about something that everybody really cares about, which is, not surprisingly, their love lives, their own sort of personal relationships with members of the opposite sex. And and for the most part, I think it's fair to say that Kolontai here is primarily talking about relationships with people of the opposite sex. So here is Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth, Section 1. Love as a socio-psychological factor. You ask me, my young friend, what place proletarian ideology gives to love. You are concerned by the fact that at the present time, young workers are occupied more with love and related questions than with the tremendous tasks of construction which face the workers' republic. It is difficult for me to judge events from a distance, but let us try to find an explanation for the situation, and then it will be easier to answer the first question about the place of love in proletarian ideology. There can be no doubt that Soviet Russia has entered a new phase of the civil war. The main theater of struggle is now the front where the two ideologies, the two cultures, the bourgeois and the proletarian, do battle. The incompatibility of these two ideologies is becoming increasingly obvious, and the contradictions between these two fundamentally different cultures are growing more acute. Alongside the victory of communist principles and ideals in the sphere of politics and economics, a revolution in the outlook, emotions, and the inner world of working people is inevitably taking place. A new attitude to life, society, work, art, and to the rules of living, i.e. morality, can already be observed. The arrangement of sexual relationships is one aspect of these rules of living. Over the five years of the existence of our labor republic, the revolution on this non-military front has been accomplishing a great shift in the way men and women think. The fiercer the battle between the two ideologies, the greater the significance it assumes, and the more inevitably it raises new riddles of life and new problems to which only the ideology of the working class can give a satisfactory answer. The riddle of love that interests us here is one such problem. 
This question of the relationships between the sexes is a mystery as old as human society itself. At different levels of historical development, mankind has approached the solution of this problem in different ways. The problem remains the same. The keys to its solution change. The keys are fashioned by the different epochs, by the classes in power, and by the spirit of a particular age. In other words, by its culture. In Russia, over the recent years of intense civil war and general dislocation, there has been little interest in the nature of this riddle. The men and women of the working classes were in the grip of other emotions, passions, and experiences. In those years, everyone walked in the shadow of death, and it was being decided whether victory would belong to the revolution and progress or to counter-revolution and reaction. In the face of the revolutionary threat, tender-winged Eros fled from the surface of life. There was neither time nor a surplus of inner strength for love's joys and pains. Such is the law of the preservation of humanity's social and psychological energy. As a whole, this energy is always directed to the most urgent aims of the historical moment. And in Russia, for a time, the biological instinct of reproduction, the natural voice of nature, dominated the situation. Men and women came together and men and women parted much more easily and much more simply than before. They came together without great commitment and parted without tears or regret. The number of sexual relationships where the partners were under no obligation to each other and which were based on the instinct of reproduction unadorned by any emotions of love increased. This fact frightened some. But such a development was, in those years, inevitable. Either pre-existing relationships continued to exist and unite men and women through comradeship and long-standing friendship, which was rendered more precious by the seriousness of the moment, or new relationships were begun for the satisfaction of purely biological needs, both partners treating the affair as incidental and avoiding any commitment that might hinder their work for the revolution. The unadorned sexual drive is easily aroused, but is soon spent. Thus, wingless Eros consumes less inner strength than winged Eros, whose love is woven of delicate strands of every kind of emotion. Wingless Eros does not make one suffer from sleepless nights, does not sap one's will, and does not entangle the rational workings of the mind. The fighting class could not have fallen under the power of the winged Eros at a time when the clarion call of revolution was sounding. It would not have been expedient at such a time to waste the inner strength of the members of the collective on experiences that did not directly serve the revolution. Individual sex love, which lies at the heart of the pair marriage, demands a great expenditure of inner energy. The working class was interested not only in economizing in terms of material wealth, but also in preserving the intellectual and emotional energy of each person. For this reason, at a time of heightened revolutionary struggle, the undemanding instinct of reproduction spontaneously replaced the all-embracing winged Eros. So in this first section of the essay, I think it's really interesting that Kolontai is essentially trying to explain to her readers that even though the revolution has survived, the revolution in the hearts and minds of people is, continues to exist. Kolontai sees clearly that bourgeois ideas and ideology and thoughts and emotions around individual sex love, what she calls individual sex love, are still very pervasive in society. 
And at the same time, she also understands that a lot of her Bolshevik colleagues, particularly Lenin, are horrified at what they see as the rise of very casual sex and um, this sort of callous, um, you know, sexual exchanges between men and women, which is one of the things that obviously led Kolontai to legalize abortion in 1920 because she understood that a lot of women were getting pregnant. They were having these unwanted pregnancies from the kind of liberalization of sexuality that happens in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. And so she sees that the revolutionary ideals, which so many people at this point had actually given their lives to fight for, um, the, the, the idea of freedom and the idea of the workers' uh, paradise, so to speak, and the labor republic, which she calls it, and the emancipation of women are going to require additional struggle on the individual level. And so the other thing that I want to call attention to in this first part of the essay, which I just read, is that she makes a really interesting claim that when people are struggling for basic survival, that interest in developing love relationships wanes, and that in fact, people tend to turn to what we could call pretty clearly hookup culture or casual sex, what she calls in her sort of fancy language of the early 1920s, the wingless eros versus what she thinks of as truly meaningful, deeply committed personal relationships or the winged eros that she's going to spend the rest of the essay talking about. So this wingless eros is um, is a defense mechanism when people are under an incredible amount of stress or their energies are being uh, absorbed elsewhere, whether it's in the polity or in the economy, they tend to turn to this kind of meaningless sexual relationship because it's just a pure biological instinct. It's just a desire for uh, sexual satisfaction and you know reproductive um, demands of biology, according to Kollontai. So before I end this first episode of reading from Make Way for the Winged Eros, I do want to call attention to the fact that even in this very early piece of writing, Kolontai sort of seems to suggest that people are inclined to have less meaningful and fulfilling sexual relationships, at least in the heterosexual sphere with each other, when they are distracted by the stresses uh, and, you know, demands of a faltering or revolutionizing or otherwise somehow chaotic economy or polity or both. And that in some ways we are living in a moment of late capitalism where a lot of us are under an incredible amount of stress because of the precarity of the economy and the uncertainty of the future. And so in this early part of the essay, what Kolontai is basically trying to do is to defend herself against claims that she, you know, encourages people to have sex, to satisfy their sexual needs the same way they drink a glass of water, which is a charge that is often made against her and actually turns out to be quite untrue. She's really kind of a hopeless romantic, a bit of a hippie in the end. But also, I think it's really important that she recognizes that there was this moment of kind of total sexual freedom and liberation, which she does not see as ideal um, in terms of her vision of this winged arrows, but which she understands as historically necessary 
to furthering the goals of the revolution in, in the first place, but also in terms of preserving people's energies and preserving people's psychologies for the demands of this totally chaotic upheaval that's happening in Russia between 1917 and 1923. And so I think it's really worth thinking about that in terms of our own political moment. Um, and that as we think about you know, the quality of our relationships, no matter what kind of relationships we're talking about, a lot of, a lot of people in the world today are under an incredible amount of stress, an incredible amount of anxiety about what's happening in the world. And that obviously that is going to, according to Kolontai at least, reduce our ability to invest in, I don't like the word invest, to allocate resources, to give our time and energy, our emotions, our affections, and our attentions uh, to relationships where um, that are going to be based on sort of love, what she calls comrade love. We'll get to that in the next episode or, or the one after that. And um, it versus a kind of just sort of shallow, immediate need to connect with people on a biological level, but not really develop emotional bonds, which require an incredible amount of energy and attention. So that ends part one. Uh, I think this is actually going to be a quite long series of episodes. I think this is going to take a couple of a couple of podcasts since I'm trying to keep them under 20 minutes. But if you are liking this podcast, I really encourage you to subscribe. And as Brett uh, mentioned on Rev Left Radio, I don't have social media, so I don't really have a platform, so to speak, to push these out. So if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And I look forward to continuing the reading from Make Way for Winged Eros on the AK-47 podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.